0: avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. 7th century B.C., there was absolutely nothing more terrifying than the Assyrian Empire. If you've been to the uh, MFA, if you've been to many other world-class museums uh, in the world, uh, you've probably seen relics from the Assyrian Empire. They're very impressive. Uh, Assyrian stone carvings and those relief carvings where every man has rippling muscles and a very long, curly beard. They left behind their cylinders and their tablets stamped with the record of their conquest of the nations around Mesopotamia. Uh, Their gods are depicted with lion's claws and eagle's wings to demonstrate their ferocity. But among the artifacts that record the grandeur of Assyria are countless depictions of torture and brutality, the likes of which the world had never seen before. When the Assyrians uh, captured a city, they made the carnage of that city a public spectacle. They piled heads and bodies separately outside the city gates. When a kingdom rebelled against the empire, the Assyrians wiped that kingdom off the map. As we learned in Sunday school today, they often made the nobles of conquered areas dig up the bones of their ancestors so that they could grind them into powder as a show that they were Completely cut off from the land. They regularly made parents watch the slaughter of their children before also killing the parents as well. They gouged out eyes. They cut off limbs. They cut out tongues and left survivors to wander aimlessly. And anybody who knows the facts about Assyria will tell you that there is much more and much worse that I am leaving out for the sake of propriety. All the terrible things that I am hesitant to name from the pulpit are the realities that Israel in the 7th century faced on a daily basis. Assyria was a very real and very present danger, and it's imperative that we understand that now at the beginning of Nahum. We need to understand what Assyria was like. But not just so that we can be satisfied with what Assyria got. That's the way that some people read and, and explain the prophecy of Nahum, and in, in a level that, that's a legitimate approach. In Nahum, we are going to be confronted with, uh, with violent and stark language. The Lord declares desolation and ruin against Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 3. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. There is difficult language in Nahum. This uh, prophecy presents us with the God of wrath that does not sit comfortably with our modern sensibilities. And by the way, you know how the so-called God of the Old Testament is caricatured in our wider culture. The way he's lampooned is some sort of unhinged, raging God who loves nothing more than to rain fire on humanity and their sins. So some people explain Nahum as as though we need to make an apology for God's behavior. They detail the atrocities of the Assyrians so that their punishment will seem fitting, so that we can convince ourselves that God's justice is just. And maybe as we read Nahum, you're going to need to wrestle with that yourself, with the idea that actually God's vengeance is against his enemies is a good thing. But the primary reason that we need to know how bad Assyria was is not just so that we can be satisfied with what Assyria received. Rather, we need to be confident in what God can do. In the 7th century B.C., there was absolutely nothing more terrifying than Assyria. They were the unstoppable war machine steamrolling the ancient Near East, and yet the Lord is declaring decisively in Nahum's prophecy that he is able to stop the unstoppable. He is able to conquer the unconquerable. He is able to deliver his people from the most frightening fear they could possibly imagine. What is it that frightens you that way? What is the fear that shakes you to your core and keeps you awake at night? For most of us, it's it's very easy for us to think about the fears that we face in this life, the things that we are aware of. Maybe you're suffering with chronic pain, and your greatest fear is that that pain never goes away. Maybe your life has been built on academics. And learning, and you're afraid that one day, just like you watched it happen with your aging parents, you will lose the presence of mind and be able to string your thoughts together to communicate effectively where you are and what you're doing in the world. Maybe you're afraid of some disaster or some accident. Something that will take away your kids. Take away your house. Take away your independence or your self-respect. Maybe you're afraid that those secret indwelling sins that you've never been able to overcome will only get worse. And you're afraid that at some point all of your temptations that you've somehow kept hidden from everyone else will unravel in some spectacular scandal. And maybe you're afraid that when that finally happens, everyone else will see you for the phony that Satan likes to whisper into your ear that you actually are. It's true that Nahum doesn't give us promises in his prophecy that we will avoid these fears in daily life. There's no guarantee here that our kids will be safe and that our sins will stay secret. But what we do find in Nahum is the God who is bigger than all of these things. The Lord is the God who can topple Assyria. The Lord is the God who directs the nation. He is the God, verse 7 tells us, who is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He's the one who knows those who take refuge in him. And the Holy Spirit has given us Nahum's prophecy so that we would have confidence in that God. And confidence in him is exactly what we need most of all. Because as we read Nahum's prophecy, we're going to be reminded that there are fears that we face in this life, There are fears that we face after life is over. And actually, the scripture tells us that our greatest fear is not to be given to those like the Assyrians who can merely kill the body. Verse 7 is true. Verse 8 is true as well. The Lord who knows his people, who is a stronghold in the day of trouble is also the God who makes an end of his adversaries. And he's the God who pursues his enemies into darkness. And as we read Nahum, we will be reminded that there is a darkness, an outer darkness. There is a second death. There is a worm that does not die, and there's a fire that can't be quenched. And actually, Nahum reminds us of a fear that is truly frightening, far more frightening than the Assyrian Empire. Nahum reminds us of these things not so that we would be terrified, but so that we would have confidence. There is a Lord who is larger than Assyria. He's the same God who is greater than our guilt. He's the same Savior who is stronger than the sin that separates us from His Holy there is a Lord who is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble who knows those who take refuge in Him. Now with all that in our minds, let's look at the text. There are three lessons I think we need to learn from Nahum chapter 1. The first lesson is that the God of justice is jealous for His people. The God of justice is Jealous for his people. You you notice that Nahum begins his message by setting our theology straight. He doesn't waste much time trying to get us to think well of him as a prophet. There's no genealogy, there's no pedigree, there's no curriculum vitae here in the beginning uh, aside from his name and his hometown. and In fact, we don't even know where his hometown was. It's lost to us. We know only who he is. And in fact, for an oracle that he says is about Nineveh, It's interesting that he doesn't begin by talking about Nineveh. He begins by talking about the Lord. Because the most important thing Nahum would tell us that we can know is who God is. So verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. It's sometimes said that God repeats himself so that we would pay attention. So just like the God of Isaiah 6 is holy, 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 the God of Nahum 1 is avenging, avenging, avenging. He is the God of recompense. It's his prerogative. He tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are not to take vengeance into our own hands because God has already got that covered. And there are any number of reasons why we ought not to trust human justice, why we ought to turn to God's justice rather than our own. Human justice, you're aware, you see uh, the same headlines that I do. Sometimes human justice uh, is applied too broadly or too narrowly. Sometimes it goes too far. Sometimes it doesn't go far enough. Sometimes what ought to become vengeance actually turns into vindictiveness. Sometimes we want the offender not only to pay for what they've done, but also to suffer for it. God's vengeance is never unmeasured. So verse 2 is balanced by verse 3. The Lord keeps wrath for his enemies, yes, but the Lord is slow to anger. If you doubt that slowness, remember Jonah. Remember that a hundred years before Nahum, God sent another prophet. He had a great fish spit him out so that he could go and preach a message that led the whole city to repentance. And when Nineveh repented, God relented. Actually, that was Jonah's problem. Because according to Jonah's watch, God was a little too slow to execute his anger. He was a little too gracious. He was a little too merciful. Isn't this what I knew was going to happen, he says in chapter 4. If vengeance had been in Jonah's hands, there would not have been a Nineveh left for Nahum to preach against. So, when God tells us that he is an avenging God, an avenging God, an avenging God, three times, we ought not to think that he's just like some rattlesnake and he's coiled and he's waiting to strike at the first ankle that passes in his direction. But the Lord is slow to anger. God's anger has a limit. He is the God of justice, and it says, he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. He can't clear the guilty. He cannot allow the oppressor off the hook. Not only because his justice demands it, but because his jealousy demands it as well. That was the first thing Nahum told us, that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Despite the fact that God uh, takes this word jealous or, or jealousy and he applies it to himself, Several different times and in several different places in Scripture, this concept is still a nasty concept in our culture. Jealousy. O. Palmer Robertson says that the jealous man makes even his loved ones miserable. Maybe you know somebody who's so overbearing that they fit that description. But just like his justice, God's jealousy is free from any of the negative connotations that our sin adds to it when it shows up in our lives. God's jealousy is different from our jealousy. God's jealousy is expressed not in shame or or resentment. It doesn't show up in control and manipulation. God's jealousy shows up, as expressed in the protection of his people from the things that are harmful to them. He is the loving and very gentle husband whose gentleness finally runs out when his bride is threatened. Nahum says the Lord is jealous and abandoned. And those two qualities are connected, so the wrath he keeps for his adversaries and his enemies is directly proportional to the zeal that he has for the safety of his people. The Lord cannot allow the guilty to go unpunished because he will not allow his people to be undefended. And when the Lord appears in the defense of his people, he comes in unrebukable power. We won't sift through every phrase of verses 3 to 5, because in this uh, poetic example you can see the point uh, just lying on the surface there. It's plain to us. The Lord is the Lord of creation. He's not merely a God who's uh, semi-connected with creation. He's the God who controls creation. Just as he made it, so may he unmake it. So Nahum envisions creation undone. He envisions seas dried up, hills melting. It's cataclysmic language. The most fertile agricultural regions he can think of are are reduced to tinder. The foundations of the mountains tremble in fear before the coming of the Lord. But as impressive as all of that is in verses 3 to 5, it really is Uh, is leading up to that rhetorical question in verse 6. The question of who? Who can stand before his indignation, the prophet asks? Who can endure the heat of his anger? It's a rhetorical question. You're already supposed to know the answer. The answer, of course, is that no one can stand. If the seas and the hills are are turned back because of God's anger. There is no man or woman ever created that can stand the blast of God's anger in its full vent. It is a furnace, as we've seen in other minor prophets, that consumes sinners like stubble. God's wrath is poured out. The rocks are broken. Who then can endure the heat of his anger? From another vantage point, it gives us a glimpse into the suffering that Jesus endured sacrifice for sinners. Do you remember this scene in the New Testament when Jesus was crucified? The sky was darkened and the sun refused to give its light, when the earth trembled and the rocks were split in two when creation was undone. And Jesus drank the cup appointed for sinners and creation is unmade in ways that sound very similar to what Nahum is describing here before the wrath of the Lord. And if you wonder why Jesus went through it, why Jesus allowed God's anger to consume him, the anger is that he's the answer to verse 6, that only he could do it. Only he could endure it. Only in Jesus could God's justice be poured out, and his jealousy claim the prize of his bride that he has chosen for himself. The Lord is just. He will by no means clear the guilty, and that means there must be punishment. By our sin, we've made ourselves adversaries with the Lord. In our iniquity, we have declared our rebellion against His kingship. And the Almighty cannot wink at sin, for His perfect justice will not allow it to be overlooked. The Lord is just, but the Lord is jealous. Jealous for the protection of his people. So Paul says that Christ is the loving husband. He's the one who's determined to present his bride to himself in sinless splendor. What then can be done? There has to be a substitute. There has to be an uncreated Savior who can endure the heat of God's anger while that creation itself is torn apart. There has to be a spotless lamb who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's why Jesus endured it, because only he could. Nahum says that God's wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces, and who can stand before his indignation, but verse 7 says that the Lord is good. a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote that in Christ, justice and mercy kiss each other. And justice says, I am pleased. It teaches us the first lesson of Nahum. The God of justice is jealous for his people. The second lesson flows out of that. Because God is just and because he is jealous, all God's enemies will be consumed. All God's enemies will be consumed. That's the second lesson. You may have figured out already that verses 7 and 8 are the the backbone of this first chapter. In fact, they are much like the backbone of this entire book. Verses 7 and 8 set out two options, two destinies that are entirely dependent upon the way that we approach the God of creation. The Lord who's slow to anger and great in power. Those who hope in Him will find safety. Those who hate Him will be consumed. And as if to stress these diverging paths, the rest of the chapter ping-pongs back and forth. It jumps between words of comfort for Judah and words of judgment for Nineveh. The switch is sometimes hard to find because in most instances, Nahum doesn't give us uh, any indication. If you're reading the NIV, they will insert the words Nineveh and Judah at various places, except for verse 15, they're not actually there. Most of the time, we have to rely on the context clues to tell us what's going on, but that's part of Nahum's message. That rapid jump between these two extremes helps us to see that the fates, of verses 7 and 8, are both true, and that they are both true at the same time. It's not an either-or proposition. God is not either a stronghold for his people or a flood against his adversaries. He does not either know those who trust him or pursue his enemies, he does both. He does them simultaneously. Very often he achieves the one by accomplishing the other. In fact, between verses 9 and 15, even when the focus goes back and forth between comfort and judgment, the unifying theme that runs through the rest of this text is that Nineveh will be cut off. Notice the language as it goes through these verses. You see it in verse 9, and the language picked up from Verse 8, of a complete end. Verse 9, what do you plot? He will make a complete end. You see it in verse 12, picking up the language of being cut down. Though they are full strength and many, they will be cut down. They will pass away, says the Lord. That's comfort, but it's the same idea. You see it in verses 14 and verse 15, one instance of judgment, one instance of comfort. Yet the Lord uses the phrase cut off in both instances. What does it tell us? tells us that God has taken notice. If God's suffering people wonder whether he has seen what they are going through, he is assuring them that he has. If God's enemies wonder if maybe there is some sort of escape clause away from God's righteousness, he is assuring them that there isn't. So between verses 9 and 11, the Lord points out Nineveh's plotting. Verse 11, he says, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. A worthless counselor, he says. The historical situation is most likely lost to us, but maybe it was something like what happened during the days of Hezekiah, a generation or so before Nahum's day. You remember this situation. You can read it in in 1 Kings chapter 18, how Sennacherib came against Judah, and he sent out his armies to lay siege to the city. He sent out his envoys to shout over the walls to the people who were trapped inside. And the message of the messenger to the Israelites was, Do not let Hezekiah tell you that the Lord can deliver you from my hand. 2 Kings 18, verse 35, the messenger said, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem. The Assyrians fought it against the Lord. In their minds, they thought that God was just like all of the blind idols that offered no resistance to their steamroller when it came through the other cities and kingdoms in the ancient Near East. But the Lord had a different view. Actually, in Isaiah chapter 10, God has already called Assyria uh, the rod of my anger, he says. A tool. In God's hand, a a tool sharpened and and ready and used by the Lord, wielded for his purposes. His purpose both to judge the nations and to chasten his wayward children. You know, Dale Ralph Davis says that a funny thing happens when the Lord uses nations to execute his justice. A funny thing that happens is that those nations tend to get a deity complex. They tend to begin to think that they actually are greater than the God who wields them. And it happened to Assyria. It happened to Babylon after them. And you know how it worked out for Sennacherib. The Lord sent him home to Nineveh with his tail between his legs. He sent him back with 185,000 dead troops rotting in the Judean wilderness. So maybe the plotting in verses 9 to 11 is is something like what happened with Hezekiah. Maybe it's been lost and and forgotten forever, but the point is the same. That the Lord takes notice of those who set their faces against him. He pays attention to those who think that they can gain God's system and still come out on top. He will do to all of his enemies as he did to the Assyrians. Both outside Jerusalem in 701, and when Nineveh fell 90 years later, God will make a complete end of his enemies. The same message is, is repeated in verse 14, though there in verse 14 the focus narrows. In verses 9 to 11, when the pronoun you shows up, it shows up in the feminine form, and that simply means that there God is speaking to the city of Nineveh. He's speaking to the Assyrian people as a whole, but in verse 14, when the word shows up, it shows up in the masculine form. He's speaking to an individual. Most commentators are agreed that he's probably referencing the king of Assyria at the time, a man who is a brutal and barbaric man by the name of Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal, like all other Assyrian kings, prided himself on his conquest of the surrounding nations. He often let conquered kings live while he killed their sons instead to remind them that their line ends with them. He would tie chains around their necks and thread them through their noses and their mouths and lead them back to his city in Nineveh and put them in dog kennels to show what he thought of them and how small they were. He would cart off their idols of the other nations and he would place them in his temple as trophies to his gods. So when the Lord pronounces his commandment against this king, the point is that God is giving back what he's been handing out. Notice what God says. He says in verse 14, there will be no one to carry on his name. His descendants will be cut off. God says in verse 14 that his false idols will be overcome and cut off. The Lord says that he will make his grave. That means there is not going to be some marble mausoleum declaring Ashurbanipal's greatness to future generations. An unmarked hole in the ground is almost too good for someone so low and so vile. So the Lord is declaring that he will do. As he promises to do, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. Now remember, we could use all this as a justification of God's justice. Certainly it is that, if that's what you're looking for. Or... We could look beyond Assyria and beyond Ashurbanipal and we could recognize that this destruction is one more foretaste of God's great final victory that is certainly yet to come. All of God's enemies will be consumed and God's people still have enemies today, don't they? I'm not talking about ISIS. I'm not talking about secular materialism. I'm not talking about the people who've been deceived and caught up in any of the anti-Christian cults that you can find on any number of street corners in any city in the world. The New Testament is clear that as believers, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly places. Our enemies are spiritual enemies. Satan and his subjects, who the scriptures tell us are real and personal they are lying together against the Lord and against his anointed. Peter in the New Testament calls Satan a prowling lion. John in Revelation says he's the accuser of the brethren. Jesus says that he's a strong man, that he has come to vanquish so that he can steal back the spoil of souls that belong to him. And when Nahum says that God will pursue his enemies into the darkness, we need to look further than the fall of Nineveh we need to look to the promise of God that at the day of judgment, God's great enemy will be dealt with. The enslaver of souls will himself be bound. The accuser of the brethren will himself be judged. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 puts it this way. It says, The devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Christians may disagree among one another and among ourselves about some of the details of the time in the book of Revelation, but what we can agree on is that the punishment that falls on the ancient serpent is the final example of the lesson that we find in Nahum. That all the enemies of God will be completely consumed. Finally, the third lesson in Nahum. Nahum 1 uh, teaches us that because God is just because he's jealous, all of his children will rejoice in him. All God's children will rejoice in him. In verse 13, the Lord declares release for his suffering people. And now I will break his yoke from off you, he says. I will burst your bonds apart. And this is what we expect. God is the loving husband. The jealous one for his bride. He will stop at nothing to deliver his people from the slavery and the bondage of their oppressors. This is what we expect. But immediately before that statement, God says something that we don't see coming. He takes ownership of what his people have been suffering through. Though I have afflicted you, he says, I will afflict you no more. You remember Assyria, the rod of God's anger. You remember Assyria, the tool to judge the nations and chasten God's children. The Lord is not ashamed to let his people know that he's been involved in everything they have endured through all the atrocities of the Assyrian war machine. He doesn't come up to that edge and say, well, I'm doing this good thing for you, but I had nothing to do with that over there. He doesn't say that I'm in control of this part of creation, but that, I don't know what's happening. In fact, God's involvement is the only truth that makes sense of the hope that he's offering for his people in this chapter. In verse 15, God says that the message of peace is just on the horizon. It's a generation away, it's coming. Wait for it, he says. Verse 7, he says that he offers a stronghold when the day of trouble will find them. The Lord gives his solemn word that he will slay the beasts who threaten to slaughter his children. But how do we know that God can do that if he is not sovereign over those beasts? How can we trust that the Lord will end his servant's suffering if God has not ordered and ordained the suffering his servants suffered. Well, we might say that the Lord is very powerful, of course. The Lord is able to do many wonderful and and mighty things. We may say that That God is very wise. He knows all outcomes. He knows how to woo the nations and nudge kingdoms in the right direction. We might say that, that God, of course, loves his people very much. That he will fight tooth and nail to see that no harm comes to them. And all of that is true, of course. The Lord is powerful, and the Lord is wise, and the Lord is loving. But if all of that were true, and yet God were not sovereign over Assyria, God would be limited. If God has complete control over everything in the universe, except for that one thing that is afflicting his people, and he can make no promises. If the Lord is not sovereign over what his people suffer, then verse 7 has to read very differently. Verse 7 would have to say something like, the Lord is good, and in the day of trouble you know he's going to try his very best, and we'll see how it turns out. That's not God's word. God's word to Israel is, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. How can we know that? Because God is the God of creation. He's the one who set the boundaries first for the seas and for the dry land. He's the one who said, this far shall you come and no farther. In the days of Job, he set the boundaries for Satan's attacks. In the 7th century, he set the boundaries for the Assyrian Empire. He's the God who sets the boundaries for your cancer. He's the God who sets the boundaries for your sadness. He's the God who sets the boundaries for your bank account. He's the God who sets the boundaries of your anxiety and your depression he is the God who says to your sin and to that gnawing temptation that nobody else sees, this far you shall come and no farther. The Lord is not ashamed to take ownership if we suffer. Why not? So that we would have confidence in Him. So that we would know that when the day of trouble finds us, the Lord has already seen it. And the Lord has already appointed it. And the Lord has already ordained its end and its limits. Do you notice that this closing verse in Nahum 1 presents us with confidence in what the Lord is yet to do? Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you, He is utterly cut off. As I've mentioned, those words were written at least a generation before Nineveh fell. They're written while verse 12 tells us Assyria was still at full strength and many, yet the Lord says the good news is coming. You might not see it yet, but keep looking because it's on its way. And in the meantime, what should God's people do while they wait? Keep the feast, he says their vows. In other words, while God's people wait for His deliverance, they ought to have confidence in Him. They ought to worship the Lord as though His victory is already won. They should shout and rejoice because the God who is jealous for His people has already promised a day of deliverance. And the same is true for God's people today in Christ. For the one who suffered in the place of sinners was raised again as a first fruit. The harvest is yet to come. The one who came to destroy the works of the devil has been seated at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. And in the meantime, what should God's people do while we wait? We should worship the Lord. We should have confidence in him. We should praise him with our lives and with our lips. We should rejoice in the one that Jude says is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We should have confidence in the Lord while we wait. Because he is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in.